It is Monday, November 23rd, 2015, the Monday before uh, Thanksgiving of 2015. Thank you so much for joining me. This is uh, the Monday Morning Analyst with Luke Thomas. Um, sorry that there's not an edited version with video this week, but there wasn't, with the exception of some of the stuff from World Series of Fighting, there wasn't a lot to break down with um, video. So I guess we'll do that the next time that there really is, maybe for some stuff from the UFC this next weekend or the next the next month anyway. Uh, but listen, we got three cards to talk about, World Series of Fighting 25, Bellator 146, and of course UFC Fight Night 78, or the finale for the Ultimate Fighter Latin America 2, or however you want to describe that one. Uh, we'll get to all three of those as well. Only really the highlights for that. Uh, I'm not going to do every single fight. We don't have time for that. This podcast goes about 30 minutes, 5 minutes for opening statement, 25 minutes for some analysis, and then we just sort of uh, look ahead and schedule and see what's next. So... Without further ado, let's get to that opening statement. Five minutes on the clock, if we can here. I just closed it, and all right, here we go. Uh, opening statement, number one, there's two quick, th- or uh, two statements I want to make. One very quick one, one a little bit bigger. The quick one, y'all can say whatever you want about how often I bring it up, but I'm, I'm not going to stop until the problem is fixed, at least in some capacity. Uh, you guys know I've been saying that these broadcasts have gone too long. Now, in fairness to Bellator, they had five fights on the main card for a non-tentpole, non-title fight anywhere on that card. So there's no title fight. It wasn't a tentpole, and they still put five fights on the main card. That made me very nervous. In their defense, they did five fights in two hours. Two hours and like like three or four minutes extra. That is more than acceptable. So I would have accepted two and a half hours for that, to be perfectly honest. Um, so I really have nothing to complain about that. But on Saturday night, I watched Cotto versus Canelo. And after the fight was over, I flipped to Fox Sports 1 just to see where the event was. And they hadn't, Mag, uh, Magni and Gastelum hadn't even walked out yet. I mean, this is insane. This is insane. I'm actually not going to preview several fights at the top of the card for UFC Fight Night because my DVR didn't catch it. Um, if, if, you know, if my DVR is set to catch something for three hours, and I'll set the extender from now on, but it doesn't get it, um, you know, that's on you. It's not on me anymore. So... Take that for what it's worth. It's like the broadcast went almost four hours for six fights on the main card. Just completely unacceptable. A, a, a total disservice to the viewer. A total disservice to the event itself. The UFC deserves better than this. And this is really, the MMA fight fan deserves better than this. This is just, you know, I st- it's not abuse because you're getting free stuff. But this is painful to watch. All right. So that aside, there was something very interesting. There was a commonality among all three cards, the head kick and a lot of head kicks from the Southpaw position you saw in all three cards. I mean, look, you could have three MMA cards and see three MMA head kicks. I don't mean that necessarily, but if I could point to a common theme, it would be the immediacy of them. Like if you look in traditional kickboxing, a lot of times if you watch a glory fight, um, even to an extent of Muay Thai fight, there's a lot of guys standing in front of each other and timing kicks off of, reactions and jabs in the pocket right they get you to extend they flip to a side they come up to the head kick they they fake with the timing the hands come down and they immediately throw it up um or they push you at the end of a combination these are like the really common ways you see it but the guys aren't setting up these major angle changes they're kind of there in front of each other and they're just timing reactions with the hands a lot of the time Uh, again i don't want to overstate the case but you do see a lot of that Um, you can see a lot of different examples of of you know uh, timing to get a guy to extend a right and then throwing a kick up, even knowing he'll block it just to get him aware of certain things or because it's so impactful, it can go through the block. Um, 
the MMA ones that was those weekend, they I don't want to say they didn't have setups because they certainly did. You look at the one for uh, Andre Feely. Um, he was setting up the position incorrectly. He was going low and then switched up and went high. These are all setups, but they're investments paid over the course of the round where they cash the check later. They don't sort of set it up all in one tight spot in the pocket. There's not a lot of those pocket KOs like that. There are some, of course. Don't get me wrong. But I just mean this weekend, you, you and there were, you know, there were some other ones too. Jason High... Uh, recognizing that Cotton's elbow was really low. He was expecting a body shot, as a matter of fact, and then Jason High went upside his head. Even for ones that were blocked, like Andre Feely's, like, uh, let's say, Bubba Jenkins' one that was blocked, it still had an effect on the rest of the of the fight um, if it didn't outright win him there. So it was just really interesting to see that, um, you know, and, the, and I mentioned, look, Jason High, Bubba Jenkins, Andre Feely's a team alpha male guy. These are not guys who necessarily look they're great strikers in their own way, uh, especially high and feely more so than Jenkins. But you know, these are, you know, high has a wrestling background, for example, right? Like, and he was deftly pulling off this head kick. Very, 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 very interesting that the way he was able to make it work. And and I just mean it was just so interesting that you're not going to see these KOs right from the pocket where you can, if you miss, you can get taken down. If it blocks, you're out of position. You can't circle out. But what you might see him is if I've invested in certain reactions, one minute will pass, two minutes will pass, three minutes will pass, maybe even a round, and then I'm going to slowly begin to uh, make my head kick work for me because I'm going to throw it just in free space. Uh, at least that's what it looks like. Hey, out of nowhere, high kick, no jab to set it up, no teep, no, not, no nothing, no nothing to get a reaction. They just throw it. But that's just the way it looks if you haven't watched the rest of the tape, you watch the rest of the tape and they're slow investment. All I mean to say is slightly different than some of these pocket head kicks that you might see sometimes in more traditional kickboxing or uh, Muay Thai, where they're 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 just reacting off of, they're, they're reacting themselves off of reactions that someone else is giving them in tight quarters. You're not getting that exactly, mostly because guys can't stand there without getting taken down. Um, but you're still getting them, and you're getting them with guys without striking backgrounds. Very, very impressive. All right, so let's put 25 minutes on the clock here if we can, and let's go. All right, so we're on the clock. Um, let's start with UFC. Again, I'm not going to go through hardly a, very many of these at all because, A, we're short on time, and B, a lot of this was just bad. So UFC Fight Night 78 took place at Arena Monterrey in Monterrey, Mexico. Had an attendance of 10,410. I did not get the... Uh, gate, but you know, I'm sure it's somewhere in the four to five hundred thousand range, maybe maybe a little bit more. Uh, there are a bunch of fights on this card: six, ten, thirteen. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of fights, and every single fight on the main card was a decision, which of course you cannot plan for. But um, you know, very very notable that that happened. Um, there were some interesting fights on the prelim card, which we'll discuss in just a second. Neil Magny defeating Kevin Ga- uh, Gastelum via, via split decision, 47-48, 48-47, 48-47. I think most people had it that way. I think you could have arguably had it a draw if you really want to be um, in the mood to hand out, I think, a fourth round 10-8. But nevertheless, I think what surprised me most was on the ground, one of the problems that Kelvin, excuse me, that that Neil Magny has is, and you saw this with Sergio Moraes, and you saw it with Demi and Maya. Now those two guys are world champions, so anyone's going to look, you know, not that great next to them. And Neil Magny's very, very good on the ground. It's not that; it's that he's very, very tall and lanky, and a lot of times, especially in MMA, because guys are trying to push you off of them so they can create space to scramble. Well, when you create space to scramble, you also, if you don't do it just right, you can create space to get past. And I thought for sure. 
on top, Kelvin Gastelum, but I thought Kelvin Gastelum would get the takedown easier. And I thought for sure on top, you'd be able to control a little bit better. And for sure, you know, he had his moments in those two regards, but not nearly enough. I was very surprised at how much Magny was able to shut him down along the fence. Um, I was surprised at how much he uh, was able to withstand some of the offensive uh, uh, power punching because Kelvin Gastelum can, you know, he packs a wallop. So, you know, very interesting to see, I think, the experience and the um, just the amount of cage time that Neil Magny has gotten has really tightened up a lot of different scenarios that I don't think Kelvin has had, you know, he just hasn't had as much repetition in. I still think overall Kelvin's a little bit more of a talented guy, but, you know, Neil, Mag- Neil Magny, this is his best win by far, if you ask me. Um, it was tough. It was hard-earned. It went five rounds. He showed a, a very very respectable striking arsenal. But for me, that wasn't really what made the difference. It was in those tight quarters where you couldn't surrender much territory or spend a lot of time, um, you know, having to fight out of deficits. He never let deficits occur. Uh, shocking for me to see that. Not, not, not like, you know, home Rousey, but I was wrong about Neil Magny. I definitely thought Kelvin Gaston would just physically overwhelm him. And it just wasn't the case. Uh, Ricardo Lamas defeated Diego Sanchez, a unanimous decision, 30-27, 30-27, 30-27. Went about as you would expect, uh, and you know Diego Sanchez at 145, I just don't think that this is a viable strategy. Um, he, he can make the weight, and I admire his unbelievable gameness. I admire his fighting spirit. It's truly one of a kind, but fighting spirit doesn't win fights. Um, skills do. All right, Henry Cejudo. This one was kind of interesting. Defeating Juicier Formiga or GCA, however you want to pronounce it. Split decision, 30-27, 28-29, Scorecard sucked. I thought Henry won at least two of those rounds, if not all three. Um, this was very interesting to me. I, I think that the takedown defense was what you thought it would be. Um, Formiga could not create a scramble to save his life and was constantly shut down and put into the clinch. So you'd see Cejudo throw a strike, throw another. The second one wouldn't land because it would be the wrong range, maybe even intentionally, and he would immediately start firing underhooks. He almost never lost, by the way, if you go back and you watch, he almost never lost the right underhook. He constantly had that. Um, that was his go-to. Is either just getting that elbow in tight, hand on the bicep, sliding it through if he had to. He was really good about that. There was one moment, I think in the very first round, Henry Cejudo puts his left hand up, puts it down, looks like he's going to jab to the body. You see Formiga put his hand down to like swat it, and then before he can finish the punch, he actually leaps and comes over the top. Um, Henry Cejudo does and lands a crushing left hook. Uh, slick. Very, very slick. Um, really, really enjoyed that from Henry Cejudo. So, like, his handwork, very good. Very good job at setting up feints. Always seems to have a good angle on someone. When he loses distance, a very boxing thing to tie up. But because he has the wrestling, it's a skills transference you see going on there. You know, you can really tell his stand-up is boxing with a little bit of kicks mixed in. It's not quite kickboxing yet, although I have to say, I admit, it's getting better and better, uh, both in terms of blocking kicks, both in terms of, you know, if you go back and watch his leg kicks, they're both thigh and calf. Um, he gives out to both top and bottom. But to me, it was just kind of lackluster because basically Cejudo could get off first. Um, a lot of times you had... Formiga trying to bait him because he knew he was behind on the scorecards, backing up, and Cejudo doing just enough to land a shot, avoid a shot, and then get some kind of a clinch and then wrestle against the fence where 
you know, Suhudo would win those because he's not going to take as many risks as Formiga. He's probably also better in those positions. So that so really Formiga could never create a scramble, could never get to the back, could never really just do a whole lot of anything. I mean, he had his moments where he landed as well, but, you know, a strong performance in some ways uh, by Henry Suhudo in terms of the knuckle game, but still is a work in progress a little bit. And I, and I you know, he's just not putting together um, damage in, in the kind of way you would hope. You know, he's, he's very physical at the weight, obviously, given his wrestling background. But, oh, by the way, he had a beautiful takedown uh, off, a, off a caught kick, uh, caught kick, turned into a single. Or no, he had the one against the fence. Uh, he was able to get a high crotch off the fence and then immediately lift, even with Formiga having an underhook on the very same side. So I think it was a high crotch underneath the uh, – he was on the outside of the left leg of Formiga. Formiga had an underhook on the left side, and, and Cejudo still hit a high amplitude throw on him. That was pretty remarkable. Uh, I'm not even going to talk about these two because they, they just don't they just don't rate. Eric Montano defeated Enrique Marin via split decision. Uh, Enrique Barzola defeated Horacio Gutierrez. Uh, thirty twenty seven in the last round, thirty twenty six. Again, I'm I'm just not going to waste time on those. They're not they're not even WSOF level. Uh, Leandro Silva defeated Efrain Escudero, twenty nine twenty eight twenty nine twenty eight twenty nine twenty eight. This was another curious one. Leandro Silva having just enough on the feet to get some zip and pop, cut angles, hit, not be hit, hit, lean, hit, turn at an angle. You saw a lot of that going on. Escudero not really doing a whole lot in the clinch, not changing levels for a takedown on top. You know, he would get stuck in butterfly guard and Silva wouldn't, again, Silva would not extend on purpose. You know, some guys will use it to lift. Uh, Silva wouldn't even do that hardly at all. And then, you know, if, if you get, for example, George St. Pierre in butterfly, what's he going to do? He's going to step over. He's going to step over at least one side to get to the half guard. You get to half guard, you can submit people from half guard. You can control them there. I feel like half guard is a little bit better to get someone's hips and, um, shoulders on the mat at the same time you know obviously not everyone's going to feel that way but i think a lot of people do um it's good for ground and pound it's good for chokes it's good for kimuras just a lot you could do with that and i just never saw any like offensive um, um pressure in that kind of way so he winds up losing the, the, the decision uh, on the preliminary car eric perez defeated taylor lapilus or Lapilus, who's either pronounced on the broadcast, 29-28s across the board. Uh, Lapilus just not really having a lot of answers in the wrestling department, uh, even really the clinch department, um, to, to just keep Perez off of him, but obviously is a tremendous striker. Bartos Fabinski defeating Hector Obina via unanimous decision, 29-28, and then two 30-27s, uh, essentially a wrestle fest. And there was a guy in Fabinski who would consistently move to half guard. There's a lot you can do from half guard. Again, if, once you get someone in half guard, if they don't have a good half a half guard game, if they're not doing deep half, if they're not going um, lockdown on you to keep you in place, you know you can pass easily. You're just getting one leg through. If you have good pressure passing, you can do it. Um, there's just, it, it gives you a lot. You can do leg weave passing. There's just a lot you can do from that position in MMA um, where the passing, I feel like, is a little bit easier. Uh, Alejandro Perez defeated Scott Jorgensen from an ankle injury at 426 of the second round. This was legitimately hard to watch. Legitimately, he injures his foot or his ankle at the end of the first round, it appears. His corner is, well, uh, you know, it's, it's obvious to anyone who can see it. He goes back out in the second round, which I don't know that he should have done. And, you know, he can't stand on it. He's constantly twisting his ankle and stumbling. He is spending his time against the fence and just trying to, like, punch out and away. Poor Scott Jorgensen, you know, doing the best he can. Eventually, you know, nearly, he nearly goes the entire round, but eventually just crumbles to the mat and taps out. 
and Perez gets on him and, and fires a shot to, to finally stop it. But um, it reminded me of Jamie Varner, but that didn't go on nearly as long. This was, this was, this was torture to watch. Um, I feel very, very bad for him. All right, and then Andre Feely defeated Gabriel uh, Benitez. Again, head kick and then punches, 313 of the very first round. This is what I'm talking about. Now, it was interesting to me because Feely was the one pursuing. Feely was the one eating outside leg kicks. Feely was the one running into the jab of Benitez over and over and over again. So if you're watching up first, you're like, okay, Benitez is not so bad here. Um, but he was responding overall to the movement of Feely. And I feel like what happened was you saw Feely go low, low, low. Finally fires it high. Benitez had his hands up, but not a little low. Obviously, once you guys throw that, some guys like to throw the head kick on the neck. Some guys like to throw it on here. You saw Holly Holm went to the neck. Um, you know, other guys don't. Uh, Anthony Pettis, I think he prefers like right here, shin on here, you know. Um, and so, you know, he, Mowgli or um, Benitez kind of had his hands a little bit low and Feely made him pay. But the other key to that was if you watch his movement against the fence, that was the first time before they were kind of rotating like this. Here's Benitez, here's Feely. They were kind of rotating like this at an axis um, together in space like that. They were like, twisting around each other. But that was one point where um, Feely was able from an angle, from a little bit of diagonal movement to his credit, he, he rather than Benitez being able to circle out, he kind of had to go straight across against that fence. And when he did that and then stopped in space, uh, Feely, Feely got him. So that's my point. Like, he didn't set it up with the hands. He didn't fire it out, shuffle, and then fire it out again. Like, it wasn't a pocket one. He just waited, 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 bang, because he had set everything up before, and he had good controlling space um, with his footwork and the back of Benitez against the fence. Very, very nice. And then he had three fights on UFC Fight, fight Pass. Alvaro Herrera defeated Vernon Ramos. Uh, 30 seconds of the first round via punch. Uh, Polo Reyes defeated Cesar Arzamendia, 342 of the first round. And then Michelle Prezeris defeated Valmir Lazaro, split decision, 29-28, 28-29, and then 29-28. Uh, fighter of the card for me on this one, hmm, probably going to be, I guess Ricardo Lamas was the most dominant, um, but I guess Neil Magny had the best one of his career, so I'll probably give it to him. All right, we move to Bellator now, which, again, to their credit, they usually only do four fights for a non-tentpole event that also does not have a title fight. They did five, and they were still out of there in two hours. I very, very much appreciate that because those tentpole events, they run super long, and I guess they're just determined to do that. But if you're not going to do tentpoles, let's move it along. To their credit, they did. All right, uh, Melvin Manhoof. Excuse me, this took place at – this seems to be one of the holdovers from – the Rebney era, in terms of contractual obligations, they still have to satisfy. The Windstar Casino in Thackerville, Oklahoma, attendance 1,200. It's a small theater for a gate of about 91,000. This is not particularly uh, a big money-making experience for them. So uh, the fight was headlined by Melvin Manhoof, and he took it on taking on Hisaki Kato. He won at 343 the first round via KO punch. He mentioned it in his post-fight speech, if you go back and you watch, or speech or questions or whatever, if you go back and watch, Kato throws everything from the left side. Everything, all the kicks, all the punches. He'll follow up with a right if he has you dead to rights. But really, he likes to lunge with the left. There was no jab. Jabs can be hard to throw sometimes when it's two people like this, uh, opposite ends. You know, one's a southpaw, one's not. Um, but Kato, just really, really predictable. Trying to overwhelm and back up Manhoff. Having some success against that fence and then just stopping his movement in real time. Oh, Manhoff, in perfect position, just explodes into a left hook, catches him clean. 
That was all she wrote. Uh, very, very nicely done. But Melvin Manhoff being in trouble, of course, um, arguably shouldn't be fighting anymore. But nevertheless, gets a nice KO win over Hisaki Kato, who was just trying to overwhelm him from essentially one side of offense. Um, yeah, bizarre. This guy, I'm telling you, man, he's getting my attention a little bit here. Brandon Gertz defeating Derek Campos via KO of punches at 37 seconds of the first round. Brandon Gertz has a tremendous, tremendous punch. Another Southpaw guy. You saw a lot of that this, this week, too. A lot of guys featuring this, same as Holm and Rousey. Not a lot of Orthodox versus Orthodox or Southpaw versus Southpaw. So a lot of guys, opposite stance, and it really is interesting to watch. Campos being the aggressor, Gertz backing up, um, Gertz circling into his own power hand, if I recall correctly. Um, and you see, you saw, interestingly, um, Compost's footwork really caught my attention on this one. So you can go back and watch it. And remember, all of Bellator's fights, if you miss them, they're all going to be on Spark.com. So you can go check those out for free, which I kind of appreciate. Um, but what was interesting to me about this was Derek Compost would slide at an angle and then come up straight. And he did this three times in just that short amount of time. Slide back at an angle, diagonal back right, and then come up straight. Diagonal back right, and then come up straight. And you see Gertz adjust to the, the diagonal movement and then slowly position himself, and then he catches uh, Compost on the half beat. Bang, left straight. Then he catches him with two rights before he can even hit the ground because he's just so athletic. And by that point, I mean, I think the second right shut the lights out and he hit the ground. He was already out. Um, Brandon Gertz has tremendous, tremendous power. And, you know, he tries to cover a lot of distance with his – you see this in MMA a lot. A lot of guys don't really work behind the jab sometimes. Again, in a situation like that, it can be hard. Um, but, you you know, you see a lot of guys just try to cover a lot of distance with a punch. But, man, if they can get in there, someone like Brandon Gertz, who has just tremendous explosive athleticism, um, boy, they can do a lot of damage. This is a fight I was wrong about. Bubba Jenkins taking on Jordan Parsons, winning via split decision, 29-28, 28-29, and 30-27. Um, not nearly as close as the decision there makes it seem. Parsons never really out of it. But, man, Bubba Jenkins surprised me. I had picked Parsons in the pre-fight for one reason. He's athletic himself. Um, so I thought he could challenge some of the speed and explosive ability that Jenkins has, especially early. Uh, and I thought that he would eventually win scrambles in the second and third round. And it looked like he was going that way in the second, but really was not enough. In the first round, the wrestling of Jenkins is just too much. He doesn't even like throw a punch or a two to get in on you. And he does. And once he does, man, you are going for a ride. Whoa. He has super explosive takedowns. You see the one where he didn't even have a good grip is fading to his right, pops his hips one more time and then suplexes uh, Parsons over his left shoulder. Boy, that is nasty. That is nasty. There are not a lot of guys who can do that. Now, the knock on Jenkins and why I picked against him was I, I just hadn't been a believer in his development, and I still think he's got some work to do. But I will give credit where credit is due. I thought he looked much, much better. Jordan Parsons does not have a big name. I'm telling you, he is a very credible opponent. He's one of these guys that if he performs his best, he can do a lot of damage to people. He has big punching power, like I said, athletic, good in scrambles, um, and really kind of a fighter till the very end. And he didn't really have a whole lot for Jenkins here. Jenkins obviously had the wrestling advantage, and there were some moments where he would get a little bit tied up against the fence and get a little bit lazy. But here's another guy where he was setting up footwork, uh, excuse me, setting up the angle for the footwork for the head kick. Gets Gertz even to block it, and it was still so powerful, it rocked him. Gets on top and does just nasty, nasty, awful things to him. Um, yeah. You know, I still saw a lot of Jenkins one-shotting it and rolling out, one-shotting it, two-shotting it, rolling it out, never really putting a ton of pressure on Parsons. Even when he had him hurt, he was still a little bit, you know, Parsons was scrambling really well. But, 
I guess what I'm saying is we haven't got to the point yet where Jenkins is so comfortable with movement in and out of the pocket that he can, like, look at TJ Dillashaw. He gets in, gets out, gets in, gets out, gets in, gets out, gets in, gets out. And this goes on for him for, for a second or two versus get in, get out, turn. Get in, punch, get out, turn. You see what I mean? There's a little bit more of, yes, they're getting in and out in quick frequency, in quick succession. Someone like Dillashaw is punching, changing angles, punching, changing angles, punching, changing, kicking, changing angles, kicking, and then getting out. He just does a lot in that movement where he's getting in and out like that, super, super, super quick versus bang, bang, I'm out. Bang, I'm out. Bang, I'm out. Um, so he's got some work to do, but I, I will be, I will give credit where credit is due. Looked a lot sharper with his punches. Looked a lot, looked, looks very accurate with some of his kicking. Uh, good body kicks he had throughout that fight. And again, the wrestling was basically unstoppable. Got it, got it stuffed a few times. Jenkins is still a little bit willing to reach with his takedown um, from a from far distance, but that's usually because even when he does that, he, they, people still can't stop it. But you know, against the better guys, they will. So um, I'm liking the progress from Bubba Jenkins. I was I was skeptical about where we were going with this project, but there is definitely still some life left in it. So I'll be curious to see where he goes. Chidi Njikawani defeated Ricky Rainey. Uh, in my view, he should not have. Rainey should have won that fight. But Rainey, uh, excuse me, but Enjo Kawani did 29-28, 29-28, and 29-28. I had two rounds for Rainey, one round for Enjo Kawani. And Enjo Kawani, I don't really know what you want to say about him, man. Like in free space, the guy just looks like a destroyer. He's got such a powerful punch. He has good footwork. Um, you know, he looks like he, he he's, he's super athletic. He has good explosive knees from both uh, short-range distance. Um, he's got good reaction time. But I feel like people have wrestled him to death where it has really muted the spirit of who he is. You know, even Rainey trying to push him up against Spence. And to his credit, Rainey doing something really interesting. Rainey having one underhook with his right hand, uh, kind of like a shoulder control, bicep control with the left, driving his left down across the body and then coming back over the top with the right and spinning into it and landing flush on Njikowani. Nasty, man. The other part about Njikawani, man, he just feels like, I don't want to say shell-shocked, but he's so used to people trying to fight him on the takedown that he's become really defensively shelled against that fence. He's just trying to shut down stuff. I don't see a lot of shutdown, push off, and get away. You know, Holly Holm is so good, she never really lets you get a hold of her, and her number one priority is getting away, getting away, getting away. And um, The best strikers with the best takedown defense are the ones that do that. Again, time spent on the fence, clock it clock it because the more they spend there that tells you that their tactics in that particular scenario and maybe even their strategy too um is not quite calibrated correctly so uh rainy just did more i don't think he's the striker that injikawani is but um nevertheless injikawani gets the uh the decision even though i thought his performance was not so great uh guillermo viana defeating houston alexander via tko dr stoppage uh at the end of the second round several times this fight could have been stopped um you know, it was a fun fight, right? I mean, these two guys have their own issues with technique, a little bit wild. Viana, you know, um, a little craftier on the ground in terms of his defensive sensibility there. He can do a little more than you think he can. Um, he can get to your back, which he's shown in Bellator. He can reverse. He can do a lot of different things for the position. But standing on the feet, um, you know, I just liked a lot. of. I mean, look, it's, you know, it's 
it's a lot of jabs with the chin up. It's a lot of guys out of position, but these two guys slugged it out. So if that's what you were looking for, it was good matchmaking to open a free TV card on Spike, given who's on the roster. I'll put it that way. Uh, I don't know who Viana's going to beat. It seems to me like someone who's got good precise movement um, and decent takedown defense is going to uh, be uh, a handle for him. Um, or too much to handle, I should say. But, you know, whatever. Uh, and I'm not even going to go over the uh, the prelim card. Oh, Julia Budd won against Roberta Ravel. Um, 3026, 327, 327. And there was one fight on here. Oh, and Bubba McDaniel won too at a catch weight. There was one fight here. Oh, Arlene uh, Blenko versus Gabby Holloway. Allegedly, Gabby Holloway is from DC. I'm not sure where in DC she's from because the gym she's from is like from Culpeper, which is like almost two hours from DC. Um, but that might be the worst fight I've ever seen a women's featherweight fight. Okay, which brings us to, in my, oh, and uh, fighter of the card, I will give to, I'm going to give it to Bubba Jenkins. A close tie or a close close race between him and Brandon Gertz, but I'll tell you, um, Bubba Jenkins had to do more to win. And I was really impressed with what he was able to do because I, I, I admittedly counted him out. Uh, and then you move into uh, World Series of Fighting 25. Give me just one second here. All right. Then you move into World Series of Fine 25, which took place at the Comerica, Comerica, excuse me, Theater in Phoenix, Arizona. World Series of Fighting loves going to Phoenix. This is the card that had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Only eleven fights on the card. Keep in mind this is they did eleven fights on the card and they also did an eight-man tournament. All right, just remember Zufa did 13 fights on the card and did not have any tournaments there. But okay. Um not going to go over some of the other stuff at the bottom of the card. It doesn't really matter, but we'll get to... Let's see. So we'll start with here how it's listed. Uh, Jason Hyde defeating Estevan Payan via head kick and punches at 47 seconds of the second round. I thought Jason Hyde looked awesome. I thought he looked really awesome. And again, this is one of those guys... Man, excuse me. Did I say Joe Condon? Sorry. It should have been Estevan Payan. Payan, another one of these guys who got... Uh, Mike Ricci also had a head kick. That's where that Condon comes from. Apologies to Condon and Ricci and High and Estevan Payan and to you. But point still remains. Um, Jason High looked phenomenal here. Really timing the again. This is all about timing the movement. Uh, the head kick was partially blocked here, but he fell backwards, and it was interesting. You saw Payan with his right leg try and like either get a Granby roll going or something, and then he readjusts where High goes into the guard. But rather than trying to control posture, Payan keeps trying to move. Well, if you keep trying to move, if you're pushing on someone's hips and they're on top of you and you don't have control over them with your own legs, you're just kind of open in free space. Like you're trying to shrimp backwards. Uh, Jason High lit him on fire with two hard, I think, rights uh, that put his lights out. He was already hurt from the head kick and stumbled. But he, when he got hit with the head kick, he didn't all the way flop back. He kind of flopped to his rear. And then Jason High followed on top of it. So Jason High able to get a nice win uh, and return to fighting, which is great to see him back after he suffered one of the most ridiculous injustices in, in officiating in the last few years. Um, but very interesting to see how Pion was jabbing his way inside uh, and that Jason High made him pay through, I think, getting the right angle on him. So let's go, let's jump now, uh, if we can, into the tournament, the quarterfinal tournament. Luis Palomino defeating Rich uh, Patishnok, KO Punch. This came against the fence very late in the round, I believe. Let me finish this real quick. 
uh, Joan Zeferino, who would have been my fighter of the card, but did not get to be defeated Brian Foster via heel hook. This was very interesting. He won. He had he, this guy has excellent leg locks, really, 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 really good. Um, with Brian Foster, Brian Foster got into 50 50 guard and tried to play 50 50 guard by coming on top. But if you come on top of 50 50 guard, there's a certain way you have to do it. He couldn't, which means he couldn't get on top. And then eventually, all you had to see him do was if Zeferino got the uh, foot on the other side and was able to connect and, and make it rip. Interesting to note, on both of the heel hooks that he got, Zephyrino did not have very strong control. When you get those inside or reverse or power heel hooks like that, those are one of those moves, and I hate to admit, admit this, but it's kind of true. Against the very, very best in like jiu-jitsu competitions, you got to control everything. you got to control the leg you're twisting. you got to control the other leg. you got to control their posture. you got to do a lot. And on a couple of these, he didn't. But it didn't really matter, and I think he knew that. If you can just start ripping across, if someone is unprepared for it, they're going to tap, and you see that. You especially see it with a Jorge Patino fight, which we'll get to in a minute. Mike Ricci defeating Joe Condon via head kick. This was uh, amazing to me. Condon's hands were, like, down here the whole time. And again, another one like this. Another one like this with Southpaw versus versus Orthodox. You saw a lot of that this weekend, a lot of that. Um and when you saw Southpaw versus Orthodox, you saw a lot of head kicks. Bizarre. Funny. Um, anyway, Condon had the elbow down here, and you can see it. You think, because if you, if, you, if you throw your kick correctly, at least according to Muay Thai, the knee comes straight up. You, your front foot raises its ankle off the ground, so you're coming up tall. And then you flip your hips over, you turn your hips over, and that's when the kick goes up to down. All right, that's how you do it. And so I think he thought he was going to get a rib shot. I'm not exactly sure. But you see him bring his his condon. You see him bring his lead hand to his knee to try and block. I think he thought it was a body or a leg kick. But, you know, his head was wide open and Richie made him pay. It was nice. Uh, and then Islam Mamadov actually defeated Jorge Patino via unanimous decision after two rounds. So here's what happened. Mamadov tore his ACL and Richie injured his hip. So Patino and Foster moved on as their replacements. So now we move to the semifinals. Brian Foster defeated Luis Palomino in another just wild brawl at 419 of the second round. And then Joao Zeferino defeated Jorge Patino again, 124 via heel hook. And this one was really interesting um, because what you saw was Zeferino did not – when you go for a heel hook either way, no matter which way you're going, you have to address the other leg. Because even if you have good control of this one, um, they can spin, they can turn, they can back up, they can stand, they can put, you know, you have to control how they move. And so what it was interesting that he had was he had the legs, he had both legs over here to one side. And he had the, he had Patino's uh, right leg on his own right side. So it was coming across his body, right? But the left leg of Patino, at first I thought, what is Patino doing? Because when you see him tap, again, he does not have full control over the rest of his body, Zeferino. But what you see very interestingly is that I was like, well, Jorge, your left leg was free. Why didn't you just kick it off, kick off the grip? You know, he's attacking your right leg and your left leg is free. Nothing's blocking it. Put your foot on his hands and separate them. And then I noticed, I went back and watched it a couple more times, that he couldn't. Because he had like a butterfly, Patino did kind of wrapped close. You always want to be really, really tight when you do one of these heel hooks. Everything wants to be nice and tight. You're going to pull with your heels. Same thing for a toe hold. 
you know, everything wants to be nice and scrunched. That's what that's what you want. The more it's extended, you, know, you have to switch to something else or it doesn't work. And what you saw was Zeferino having nice tight positions. So what wound up happening was Patino had his right leg across and his left leg he couldn't get out because Zeferino had sat so far into him. Very nicely done. At first I was like, Zeferino's not even controlling his left leg. Yes, he is. He sat so close, the left leg couldn't come out. Very, very nicely done. So, what does that mean? Well, Brian Foster lost to Joao Seferino, but they're going to rematch again uh, in the finals. Now, Brian Foster ends up winning at 451 of the second round. You know, uh, he was losing that fight. He gets rocked also with a head kick that he blocks. It was a wild brawl. You saw him doing a much better job of getting two legs inside instead of getting one isolated uh, never getting uh, 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 his knees too far past, always kind of shrimping back to, together on the inside, turning and rolling out. Did a much better job of shutting everything down. There were several attempts. The way it all ended was, very notably, uh, Zeferino was on his back, and he was being a little bit lazy with it. He was being a little bit lazy. You see Foster, right leg forward, standing over him, you know, and there's Zeferino trying to kick him in the face and, you know, getting a little bit close, but not really so what winds up happening is um, Foster just switches stances. So now he's left hand forward, and then he takes the left leg uh, to, with his step back. So now Zeferino's left leg is fully extended, which you just don't want. And so what does what does uh, Foster do? He takes the right leg and throws it by him as he comes down with a tremendous shot that rocks. Uh, Zeferino badly so he was this way switched this way which opened up the left leg right leg he just takes and throws it by him as he comes over the top and lands a monster shot on him and from there just you know fished off with a few more punches you know I'll take Zeferino's chances in a third fight but credit to Brian Foster for um, fighting his way out of it so I guess I will say fighter of the card I'm gonna give it it's got to be I mean it's either got to be Brian Foster or Joao Zeferino so whoever you want to pick for them I'll give it to Brian Foster since he won the second time but um, all the credit in the world to Jason High for his return. It's one of the sort of stories that didn't get told enough this next this past um, weekend. So the next UFC event is, geez, this Saturday. It is going to be, oh, it's the one from Seoul, South Korea. Benson Henderson versus Jorge Masvidal. That should be a barn burner. Dong Hyun Kim versus Dominic Waters. Akiyama versus Alberto Mina. And then Duho Choi, who is a monster, versus Sam Cecilia. That is going to be just, I mean, a bang fest. Yu uh, Choi Nam versus Mike De La Torre. Taehyung Bang versus Leo Koontz. That's nubs. Uh, Dongi Yang versus Jay Collier. Uh, that's all right, I guess. Jay Collier, I like Jay Collier and his people, but I don't know what kind of future he's got. Seo Ho Ham versus Courtney Casey. That's shit. Courtney Casey, man. Courtney Casey, I, I guarantee you, she, let's see if she's the underdog. Let's see if she is the underdog for that. Yes. Oh, no. She's the favorite. There you go. I was about to say. She better be the favorite for that. Uh, Yao Zikui. I don't know how to pronounce this dude's name. Z-H-I-Q-U-I. Zikui. Zikui. I guess Freddie Serrano, the Colombian. Uh, Ning Guangzhou versus Marco Beltran. And then Dominic Steele versus a different Gong Hyung Kim. Not the same one. Uh, so there we go. That will be on Fight Pass. Enjoy that. Okay. Um, thank you so much to everyone who made the last Monday Morning Analyst the most watched. It's the most watched of not just the Monday Morning Analyst I've done, the most of this or promotional moral practice I've ever done. Crazy. Crazy, 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 crazy. 
did like 120 something thousand views, if not 130,000. So all I can say is thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. Um, it means everything. You guys are the best. I don't deserve it, but I'll take it because, hey, who wouldn't? Okay. Email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Apologies for the brevity, but we had to do it this time. And um, until next time, you guys know what time it is. Enjoy the fights.